This is Both Wonderful and Strange, a Twin Peaks podcast. My name is Chris Van Howe. For this episode, Amelia and I will be discussing part 17 of Twin Peaks The Return. We decided to vary from our usual tact of handling episodes in pairs because this, as the penultimate episode and uh, the final episode, part 18, while they were aired together and I watched them together, they are so dense, so full of action and plot and narrative and foreshadowing and Easter eggs and all these things, just tons and tons and tons and tons of, of things to pour over and dissect and, con- and consider that Amelia and I decided to break it up into two parts. So this tonight will be part 17, and then in a few days we'll gather again and we'll record for part 18. Before we start this one, I wanted to spend a moment and talk a little bit about story in Twin Peaks and how it differs from other television you know, stories told on television. Uh, Amelia and I get into this a little bit towards the end of our conversation, but I wanted to highlight it up front in that this really is an unusual brand of storytelling. Unusual is, is an understatement for Lynch, but a, a lot of television, a lot of this golden age of television, when you talk about shows like The Sopranos and Mad Men, Breaking Bad, uh, Game of Thrones, these sort of consensus, excellent television shows, uh, one of the pleasures of watching them is this this ability to sort of play chess with the show and can move pieces along. You can anticipate things happening. You can game it out. You can try to predict what's going to happen. And that's impossible with Twin Peaks. And it's exhilarating. I found myself watching the show as it goes on and on. After the show would end, I would consider all of these things and wonder what who's who, what's what, what it, what it all means. But in the moment, if you pay attention to the emotions that you're feeling, the, um, the ideas and feelings that the images and, and the, the, the sounds and the dialogue and the action on screen evoke, it's really quite powerful. And, and it's really rewarding to, to feel yourself like pulled into the depths of terror or the, maudlin of despair or like the high of slapstick comedy or romance it's all there and it's all there uh at once at times it it comes in these these really heavy hits and that's a an incredibly rare thing in television to have a show that plays with emotions in a way that most of the so-called great shows and not to say that the shows that I mentioned aren't great, but those shows are great because of the the plot of them, the 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 plot side of the story. Whereas I think with Twin Peaks, it is the the emotional side. The the plot serves that rather than the emotion of it serving the plot. So with that, let's get to part seventeen, my discussion with Amelia, a very heavy episode rich with emotion, rich with plot, rich with the story of Twin Peaks as a whole, the original series, Firewalk With Me, and The Return sort of being brought together in one massive office. I would wager that the annual Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department 
ping pong tournament would be played in Sheriff Truman's incredibly large office, and Chad would never win. I bet Andy's a pretty fierce table tennis player. So with that, let's get to my discussion with Amelia on part 17 of Twin Peaks The Return. like to welcome back Amelia Van Howe for this important, important podcast. We're about to record uh, important, important being what Andy says to Lucy uh, as he's rushing through the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department upon the arrival of Bad Cooper. Amelia, how are you? I'm doing great. How Excellent. are you? Good. Is your, uh, how's your mind after all of, uh, at, after the end of this? I'm I'm still reeling. It has been Many days. I think I watched it on Monday. Um, so I've had quite a while to think about it, and I'm still very far from making sense of everything. Yes. And in, in uh we have for the most part, except for one time, we've been we've been handling these episodes in pairs. Uh we're gonna differ from that format a little bit with uh this podcast. We are gonna cover part seventeen in one and then part eighteen in another. Uh while they do fit together very nicely as a pair. I think that they're both dense in their own unique ways that it's good to, to chop them up, let them breathe and, uh, and do that. So this will be just part 17. And then, uh, soon we will discuss part 18 and put a bow on this whole thing. Uh, Amelia, I'm ready to go. Are you ready to go? I'm so ready. Okay. So part 17, the tagline of this episode is the past dictates the future. We start in Buckhorn, our Blue Rose Squadron, hanging out after the uh, after they have eliminated Tulpa Diane, and Gordon Cole looks shook. He he says to the team, "You know, I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it." And in this scene. Albert says to him, Gordon, you've gone soft in your old age, which she has to repeat because Gordon doesn't hear him the first time. And maybe the best line delivery of the entire show, Gordon Cole says, not where it counts, buddy. <laughs> and there's a there's like to kick off like that's like in the first minute of this episode, there's two really great things about this. One is is Tammy's look after he says it. Like she's sort of, she's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the other thing is, is I like the idea of a character played by David Lynch going into the end of a show where he is typically a, a fairly difficult, you know, storyteller. He doesn't, he doesn't give people what they think they want. He gives them what he wants to give them. And I think by him saying, as we approach the end of the show, like, you know, you've gone soft Well, you know, maybe he like you've gone soft is like, oh, yeah, Big Ed and Norma had their nice little reunion and all these other little odds and ends that have sort of come together in the show. But now as we're approaching the end, he's like, yeah, but still hardware accounts, man. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he's going to show us over the next two hours. Um, 
this whole scene is 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 very strange. It's like a, a big, probably the biggest information download in the show. Uh, after that funny line, uh, Cole goes on to say a bunch of things. He has he's kept a secret from Albert for all these years. Amelia, what is the secret he has kept from the rest of the Blue Rose Squad? So the secret is that he was working. He was working closely with Cooper. And with Philip Jeffries. And I thought that it was really interesting because um, he says he says something that, that Philip Jeffries no longer exists in the real sense, which sort of leads me to believe that he perhaps knows where Jeffries is. Uh, I mean, they seemed way back, they seemed to, he seemed to like recognize the woodsman and all of that. So I wouldn't be surprised if he knows where, where Jeffries is, but, um, so they had discovered an entity known as Joe day, which over the years came to be known as Judy. Who, <laughs> right. So we first heard mention of Judy in the Twin Peaks universe in Firewalk with me when Philip Jeffries walks into the Philadelphia office and, um, says, you know, don't ask me about, about Judy and all of this. And so um, Cooper and, and Lynch and Jeffries were all looking for Judy. Uh, Jeffries disappeared and then Cooper disappeared. But Cooper had said, if I disappear, do everything you can to find me. I am uh, like trying to take care of two birds with one stone, which is one of the things that the giant tells us to remember in episode one. Yeah, we're tying it all together. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Uh, Cole goes on to tell them that uh, they, that Ray Monroe was a paid informant and that he knew that uh, this uh, Cooper was looking for coordinates. Uh, he, he apologizes to Albert, and I really like this exchange between him and Albert where he apologizes to Albert and Albert tells him like, I understand. And Cole's response to that is like, I know you understand. And I'm still sorry. Like what a professional, mm -hmm. like there's a lot of professional love between those two guys. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Know, they, they, a lot of respect there. Um, and it, it all culminates with this, this idea of two Coopers uh, being brought up again. And just as that idea is introduced, the phone rings and it's Agent Headley in the hospital room in Las Vegas calling Gordon Cole. He's he's found Dougie Jones, but he hasn't because Dougie's gone. Um, which, you know, Albert or Gordon uh, Albert has a great line like, you know, I can't tell is this the you know, is this is this the Marx brothers? Right. Uh and then one of my this this whole episode is filled with some of the best scenes in the whole series. But the um I would pay like a lot of money to watch a show every week that was just Bushnell Mullins and Gordon Cole having a chat. Absolutely. <laughs> they could call yes. it they could call yes. it boss talk. <laughs> yes. <laughs> my perfect. My favorite thing about that scene is when Bushnell Mullins is get, relaying the message, like and the agent Headley reaches for the piece of paper at one point and Mullins pulls it away from him. Like, <laughs> no, I'm better than you, FBI agent. I'm I'm in there, um, but the the end there, like where where Cole says to you know like ask who this is, and he's like I'm you know Bushnell Mullins, Lucky Seven Insurance, I'm Dougie's boss, <laughs> and 
and Cole's response at the end of, you know, the end of the like, thank you very much, Mr. Mullins. That makes two of us. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Not to be outdone. Exactly. Uh, hangs up the phone and has two exclaims, Dougie is Cooper? Which is, you know, everybody watching the show is like, yes. Uh, <laughs> how the hell is this? Pack it up. I know where he's going. <laughs> um, at that moment, we cut to the motley crew within the cells of the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department. Chad's up to something. He's mm-hmm. waiting for the drunk to fall asleep. Uh, we also see Dark Cooper on the road towards, we assume, Twin Peaks. And NATO is having some fitful sleep as he gets closer and closer and closer. I don't understand why Chad has to wait for the drunk to fall asleep because it's not like the drunk can say anything on his own anyways. Right. Like it's not like Chad, it's not like Chad's taking the key out of his boot. We'll get to that in a second, but being like, I'm taking the key out of my boot and the drunk would say, taking the key out of my boot. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. He's got nothing to worry about. I mean, Chad, come on. He's just, you know, he's thick. He's he's very thick. Um, why don't you, Amelia, tell us about our last encounter with Ben and Jerry Horn? <laughs> so this is a, a one-sided phone call. There have been so many of those uh, and so many good one-sided phone calls in this, in this fantastic return. So uh, we see Ben on the phone. Jerry has been found. Jerry's in Wyoming. And Ben has no idea how he got there. And uh, the officer on the phone said that when they picked up Jerry, he, number one, uh, said that his binoculars had murdered someone. And number two, was completely naked. And Ben just, I mean, his, his facial expressions and his tone of voice just makes this scene. He, uh... He's just completely resigned. <laughs> this is his his life is just constantly managing this circus of maniacs around him. Yes. Yeah, I'll send clothes. <laughs> <laughs> we found him. He was completely naked. That's what I what I wonder is the, the how does how does Jerry get from like thinking his binoculars killed somebody, smashing those binoculars, running all the way to Wyoming like it's it's not very clear where the encounter with with Cooper and Richard and and Jerry all happens mm-hmm. but like I, I I sort of got the sense that like they weren't in Jackson Hole when that happened so how far did he run after that and at what point during that run did he lose his clothing mm-hmm. you know what's the I you know I guess what I'm saying is if they're going to do any sort of spin-off I just want the Jerry Horns adventures spinoff here just one hour of him yelling at his foot talking about the uh the the marijuana trade just going on like like how long was his bender like a week (laughs) at least right and he went went all the way from washington state to wyoming (laughs) i don't know i i maybe he stumbled into a vortex or a time loop or something yeah like to be lying around what if he like got up on that stone and was like transported to wyoming or something who knows Mm, who knows (laughs) anything's possible with jerry horn absolutely 
Uh, here, after this scene, we see uh, Bad Cooper at uh, the the area just 253 yards due east of Jack Rabbit's palace, the same area where the Vortex appeared and took Andy into the fireman's living room. Um, the Vortex appears for Cooper, and this is, uh, he, he sort of sketches in and out of existence, and this is really one of the more interesting scenes in the whole series in a series full of where every scene is interesting. Um, but I think this one harkens back to something that's, that was also in the first episode. There's a lot of, a lot of, you know, callbacks to the first episode in here. Um, so he sketches out of existence and we see Cooper's face end up in a cage, uh, opposite side of the room from major Briggs's floating head and way, way off in the background, there's a movie screen that has this scene, like has the the vortex area on it. And then if you look very closely, the giant sort of floating suspended to the right of the screen. Um, the giant makes some sweeping moves with his hands and the image on the screen changes first to the Palmer household and second to the area outside of the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department which after some time the cage that contains Cooper floats towards the screen is put into like the same sort of system of like tubular pipes that the Laura golden ball was placed into, or the, yes, the, the Laura Palmer golden ball was placed into in episode eight and he kind of gets shot out into the out, just outside of the, the twin peaks sheriff's department where Cooper exclaims, what is this? So here's here's what I want to parse out with you in this in this conversation or in this scene. Was was the fireman in control this whole time? Um, he seems to. We'll get to what happens within the sheriff's department with with the two Coopers in a moment. But through all of this, the two outcomes for evil doppelganger Cooper were either to get electrocuted into non-existence on the top of the rock or to end up at the second set of coordinates and sort of delivering himself right into the hands of the fireman where the fireman was able to capture him and spit him out exactly where he wanted him to be for this, this cataclysmic showdown that's coming. Uh, what do you think about that theory? I, you know, I think the fireman... Is not completely in control, but he was aware that Bad Cooper had limited options. And so he did everything that he could to provide for those limited options, meaning that, you know, perhaps he somehow distributed the multiple sets of coordinates. Um, and then in the event that Cooper made it to the Twin Peaks coordinates, he then you know, controlled Freddie's destiny and made sure that that Freddie would be available. Um so I think that I don't think it was ever a sure thing, but I do think that the giant has some kind of of foresight or, uh, you know, at least knows how to prepare for the event of terrifying evil. The the and the the callback I wanted to make to episode one is in the very first scene we get this information. We got the two birds with one stone callback already in this episode. But in that same discussion, the giant slash fireman says to 
Cooper, it is in our house now. And I think the first time that you see that scene, you think, oh, there's something bad in our house, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's something, something has infiltrated our space, something that is not good that we have to expel. But upon seeing this, I wonder if that phrase has a different meaning and that meaning being like, oh, it's, it's under control now. Like the, like the reclaiming of your doppelganger is in our house. Like there's, he's boxed in, like he's only got these paths and on both, you know, he's got two paths and at both ends of these paths, I have solutions for him. Um, just yeah, something. That's very, that's very interesting. And, and it, it goes back to this idea that I, um, we discussed in our last episode of like of of pure evil sort of just in the end never really getting what it wants um so you know cooper wanted the experiment or maybe maybe the experiment and jow day are one and the same uh that's what he wanted that's why he made that box in new york city that's why he's been looking for these coordinates and it seems like all along maybe it was just like a snipe hunt like he wanted these things but ultimately his quest would lead him to, you know, right into the clutches of the firemen and, uh, and we'll, we'll discuss the outcome of, uh, you know, his fate as we move forward. Excellent. Awesome. So we are, um, Oh, one other thing that I thought was really cool when, uh, in this scene, when, uh, Cooper, when the Cooper doppelganger is pushed out outside of the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department, we see this brief flash of like the power structure of the of the firemen's operation. And it all looked like all like just like rows and rows and rows of those like diving bell, not diving, but like bell shaped things, almost like and uh, similar to the kettle shaped thing that Philip Jeffries is now as well, like this, this sort of weird supernatural machinery powering this whole operation, the White Lodge or whatever we want to call about that. I thought that was a pretty neat visual. Electricity. Yes. Yes. Okay. So we are outside of the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department. We mentioned Cooper sort of is or Cooper Doppelganger is perplexed. He says, what is this? And Andy sees him. For some reason, Andy is carrying a picnic basket, <laughs> which is never explained, but he hangs onto that thing for quite a while. Uh, Andy it's sees for him. all his just cheese sandwiches. Yes. Andy <laughs> sees him. NATO's flipping out and the drunk passes out. Like all these things are happening in rapid succession now. So now we're in this like, hyper state of happening within this this locale everybody pretty much everybody that we care about like every really great character has been you know like the the huge cast has been whittled down to this group and they're all sort of coming together um we can see chad's escape plan he's hidden a a key in his boot he's had like a cell key made you know chad sucks right it's a well-established fact. I think if you were to search Chad on Wikipedia, it would just bring up like his picture and the word sucks <laughs> yes. on it. Um, but he's got a plan at least, and he's, he's going to try to break out. Um, so 
This is all happening at once. Andy sees Cooper in the parking lot, brings him in. Lucy sees Cooper. They have this. They have this conversation. Uh, Sheriff Truman comes out. You know, introduces himself to Cooper, and the one thing, one of the really like sweet moments in this is Andy says to him, like, "He's been missing for twenty five years." That's before Wally was born. Mm-hmm. And I like that that's sort of like the demarcation in time in their life. Like, I bet I bet everything is on Wally Brando time. Yeah, pre-Wally and post-Wally. Yes, yes. That's where their life splits. Um, from there, uh, after he, after, you know, Truman leads Cooper into his office, all of a sudden Andy has this, like, vision um, he remembers his vision in the fireman's room where he sort of leads Lucy to a place. Lucy is wearing the same sweater she was wearing in his vision. Uh, for the first time since we've been reunited with Lucy and Andy, like Lucy says his name in a very concerned tone, like Andy, like, you know, she's, she's, she's feeling for him as he's having this moment of sort of recall or freak out, uh, or whatever it is. Um, and like right away, there are some indicators that, that Cooper isn't Cooper. I mean, the fact that he, he says Sheriff Truman, uh, and then, and then Frank Truman has to clarify, right? If it was real Cooper, he would have realized right away that obviously it wasn't Harry. Correct. Um, we get another indicator. Uh, so they head into Truman's office and, Andy asks him if he wants coffee, and he turns down coffee. Yes, the, the what the <laughs> the sacred fuel, this you know the 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 cup of wine of Twin Peaks, <laughs> turned down. You never I, I, turn down coffee. I mean, like he, here's the thing: I don't drink coffee. I am I am on the record as saying that I think coffee is generally abhorrent. And I know that, like, I I adore Agent Cooper, um, and so that puts me at odds with him, and that's that's something that I have to live with every day. <laughs> but if I am ever at the Double R Cafe in Washington State, I'm going to drink a cup of black coffee, <laughs> right? Like, it's not going to be my favorite thing, but it will be also kind of be my favorite thing. Right. <laughs> so. Well- Rest assured that I love coffee, so I am I am drinking your share of of black coffee and making up for that. <laughs> I'd like to think that I'm I've I've sort of co- had a compromise. I do have a fine glass of Bordeaux here with me. So, oh, excellent! Yeah, I figured if there was there was a time to drink some Bordeaux, it would be it would be now as we approach the end of this conversation. But yeah, turning down coffee, come on. The other the other sort of really great thing about this scene is that we've seen Truman's office before and it was always just like it seemed like an like a regular office like maybe 10 by 10, 12 by 12. Mm-hmm. It's got room for a desk, a bookshelf, maybe a coat hook, a couple chairs in front of the desk. But now seeing it like it's, it's huge. huge. Yeah, it's like <laughs> it's a gymnasium. <laughs> Floor would open up and there's an Olympic sized pool underneath it. <laughs> Right. Um, How big is the sheriff's station? Yeah, that's just because Pacific Northwest. There's a lot of space. You can just you know sp- sprawl out. Uh, this conversation between Truman and Cooper is very. It's like two gamblers sizing each other up. 
Mm-hmm. The they're not saying a lot. Truman specifically says Cooper's name twice without saying anything in between. So again, mm-hmm. that this idea of two Coopers, uh, and finally, um, Cooper's doppelganger says in the flesh. And they just have, sort of have this weird stare down. Uh, we then flash to the. Uh, is this right? Yes. We then flash down into the cell where Chad is enacting his escape escape plan. He's got a gun. He's leaving, and Andy is looking for Hawk. Where's Hawk throughout this whole thing? Good question. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure he's doing something awesome because that's what the Hawk does. No uh, doubt. <laughs> but uh, Andy encounters Chad with a gun. Chad has the drop on Andy. He has some unkind words for good cop Andy. Uh, but of course, there's a hero amongst us. Everybody needs a hero. And as Chad is approaching Andy and menacing him with his gun. Again, if Chad didn't suck so bad, if he was, you know, like pure malevolent evil instead of like sucky, mediocre evil, <laughs> he would have just shot Andy on sight. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't. And what happens to Chad? Freddie punches the door open and times it so that the door swings back and knocks Chad out. Yes. That's great. Perfect. <laughs> Anytime, you know, Chad in a jail cell, Chad laid out on the floor, Chad in handcuffs. These are these are my favorite things. Absolutely. No no shame in shame in that uh Schadenfreude. <laughs> yes. So Freddie saves Andy. We go back upstairs to the reception desk. The phone rings. Lucy picks it up, and it's Special Agent Dale Cooper of the FBI. Mm-hmm. And it's just great. And she gives this great who? Like, yes. obviously, something's <laughs> going on. Uh, again, we've we've seen Lucy as a you know act act in a uh, an efficient manner before, like when she was. Early in the original series, when she was eavesdropping on the conversation between Bobby and Mike, this is another one. She she calls into Sheriff Truman's office. She's able to get him to pick up the phone without revealing the fact that the other Cooper is on the line. And we get this like this great scene. This is just one of my favorite tropes in all of like drama ever where. You've got the good guy and the bad guy in the room and the good guy's on the phone or he's getting some sort of information that reveals to him that the person sitting across from him is the bad guy. And Mm -hmm. this like this like mounting tension between them and the scene is so well shot and like just escalates like both of them know immediately like as soon as as soon as the phone picks up and Cooper goes off like, you know, Harry, it's Coop. Is the coffee on? <laughs> and he just knows immediately in that. They're, as they're saying this, like, while while he's on the phone with Truman, I love that they're driving by the famous Twin Peaks City Limits sign. Like, you see, they see the exterior shot of the, the car they're in, and they drive past the sign, as Goofer is saying, is the coffee on? Mm-hmm. I was just nodding, and then I realized that you couldn't see me. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> somebody can probably see you. Maybe depends on. Maybe the fireman can see you. Uh, That's a little spooky. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, um, it's a spooky show. So, 
very clearly both Truman and evil Cooper realize that something is afoot. They both reach for their guns. There's a shot, maybe two shots. I'm not totally sure. I think probably two. There uh, are two because yes. because evil Cooper shoots and our hero shoots as well. Who's our hero? Who's our hero? It's Lucy. It's Lucy. Oh my gosh. So the I loved that. Yeah, like who who brings down ultimate evil? Lucy. Lucy. Just <laughs> just good old Lucy. She's kind. She's good at her job. She loves her husband. Good old Lucy. Uh brings it down. That and this harkens back to that that vision that Andy had where he sort of look now in the like in retrospect, you could say the vision he has is he like placing her in the place she needs to be to take that shot? You know, because he's kind of like well, le- leading but her. He through. like right because he like runs in the room after the shot, though. Correct. So that's that weird thing. Like, is there? It, you know, he runs by her at one point when he's looking for Hawk, and he says, "Important, important," and that's all he says. And that's like right when the phone rings. Mm-hmm. Um. And then, yeah, it's just very interesting. Like the 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 vision he saw was him like moving Lucy into position or like showing mm-hmm. her something. But clearly, it would make sense that she acted of her own volition because he's down in the basement in the cells dealing with Chad, and for some reason, he's got to get everybody out of their cells and upstairs. Uh, after this, so Lucy shoots the doppelganger Cooper. Frank's hat wobbles, mm-hmm. so either like. Cooper's bullet like grazed the hat or Frank has a bulletproof hat. <laughs> I like the latter. Yes. We <laughs> Seems... all need a bulletproof hat. Yes. Um, everybody is in the office now. Andy comes to Lucy's aid and says, Lucy, and what is the power that Lucy gains from her act of heroism? She now understands cellular phone. <laughs> Oh, Lucy. I I have loved spending time with Andy and Lucy in the return. You know, it especially in like the, the second season of the original series, they sort of became very flat characters, especially with with the whole like paternity thing with Dick Tremaine and all of that and uh, almost character caricatures of themselves in very superficial ways. Um, so it's, it has been so great to see them again and they are still those caricatures, but we've really gotten to see some, some wonderful depth to these characters. Absolutely. Yeah. They've, they've, they're parents, they're, they're professionals, like they're, yeah, we've, we've got to see both Lucy and Andy step up in, in pretty exciting ways and ways that honor their paths, uh, and just yeah, it's very you know very respectful of them as as human beings because you're right in the second season, especially with the Dick Tremaine stuff, like they were kind of petty, they were kind of you know mm-hmm. kind of weak, and in this this way they're they're not weak at all. They're you know they're living their lives. They went to Bora Bora, they <laughs> they saved the universe maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Good on them. Uh, she understands cellular phones. Everybody has sort of gathered into the office. Now, I believe the Mitchums have run in at this point, or they're coming in soon. Um, you know, Freddie and James and NATO are all there with Andy. Uh, and the 
No, the Mitchums aren't there yet because Cooper's not there yet. No. Um, the 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 lights darken and the woodsmen appear and they start to do their woodsman thing. They're you know they're kneading and and groping and tearing and whatever they're digging into Cooper's doppelganger body and smearing his face with dirt and blood and all manner of gross wood, woodsman things. Um, and it's this time when this is happening that Cooper arrives just in time for the bobule or the bob glob. The uh, bob glob. I like that one too. Yeah. For the bob glob to exit Cooper's doppelganger body and attack Cooper. Before this happens, though, Hawk runs in. Oh yes, and yes. Uh, and sees Cooper lying on the ground, and um, Good Cooper was still on the phone with with Frank Truman, and says, "Don't touch that body," you know. And Hawk's like, "What do you mean? This is Cooper." It's like Hawk, where you been? You know, I I would have if I had had to bet on the person who would save the day, I would have bet on Hawk one hundred percent, no looking back. But uh. Where, where was he? Hawk, where were you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's just, he kind of comes in this. He's got his gun out, so he's mm-hmm. he's ready. And who knows? I mean, the, the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department could be like as large as a convention center. <laughs> <laughs> We've given the layout of, of Sheriff Frank Truman's office. Um, but yeah, so the, the, the crowd has all assembled here. Uh, the Cooper arrives. The Bobule is there. The Bobule attacks Cooper. And as it's attacking Cooper, Freddie stands up. And just like Freddie did when he came to James' rescue, he says, Oi! <laughs> to draw <laughs> the Bobule's attention. Uh, Cooper asks him, Are you Freddie? And and Freddie's answer is, Yes, this is me destiny. <laughs> as you do when this terrifying lump of dark matter with this scary man's face on it is hovering in the air. Yes, hovering and menacing and attacking you. Uh, so Freddie and the Bobule have it out. And one thing that I, I, I wondered is if the the Freddie Bob fight, if you chore- if it was choreographed to the boxing play by play that Sarah Palmer was that was on a loop for her. Like if you if you spliced that over Bobule and Freddie's battle, if it would make any sense. Interesting. Yeah. It was a big hit by the righty. <laughs> however, <laughs> however it goes. So they're having this fight. Um, Freddie is on his heels at first by he's getting bloodied by Bob, much in the same way that Tracy and Sam were attacked by the experiment in part one. This sort of like grinding sonic, you know, I think like the the closed captioning for this described it as like sonic buffeting. Like this, like, you know, or sonic grinding, like clearly like this, this really distorted sound. Um, they, they have a few, uh, a few things. Freddie gets in one punch and then another punch brings the bobule down and then he punches it into the earth, you know, or punches it in the floor and this big gout of fire comes up. Um, and we think maybe it's over. And then of course, like it's not. The bobule comes back up and now it's sort of like molten or like glowing red. And what is it? Do you remember what it says to Freddie in that moment? I like, don't. So it's actually Bob says like one of the one of the scariest Bob lines is like, 
It's just not, I'm going to just, you know, very simply catch you with my death bag. And that's right. He says that right as Freddie deliver right before Freddie delivers the final blow and the Bobby will bursts into pieces, which ascend and disappear. And I have to assume that's the end of the creature known as Bob. You think so? Eh. I don't know. I don't know. I Part of me thinks that, that he just returned to the Black Lodge and that you can never really truly destroy Bob. But perhaps now he's he's in the lodge, and who knows how he got into Leland in the first place. Right. But but perhaps he's more restricted to the lodge now rather than being in Doppelganger Cooper or Leland or the Owls or any of those things. But who knows? Yes. Who knows? Who knows? So let's see. Where are we at now? Um, Freddie did it. He wins. Uh, the lights come back on. Cooper rushes over, puts the owl cave ring onto Doppelganger Cooper's lifeless body. His body disappears. And then we have Bradley. I think Bradley delivers the line. Or no, Rodney. What does Rodney say in regards to all of this? One for the grandkids. One for the grandkids. <laughs> That's like something you say when you go to a baseball game and you see that game and like a walk-off home run. Not, Not, you know... Hellfire and supernatural <laughs> forces unleashed by nuclear bombs fighting it out in a small, small northwestern town's uh, sheriff's office. Um, Cooper wastes no time. The uh, he goes to Frank Truman and asks for the Great Northern Key. Truman has no idea how he could know about this. So we have this moment where Cooper and NATO sort of acknowledge each other or, or or interact in this in this strange way. And this is where uh for the next ten minutes of the scene, Cooper's face is overlaid in this half dissolved effect over everything else. Uh Bobby arrives and says, What's going on here? And this is another Mitchum line. Do you remember what Bradley's line is here? <laughs> Took the words right out of my fucking mouth. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I love that the Mitchums get dropped into any social situation. This one, an admittedly weird social situation, but they're still just them. Right. They're you know? like just just gems yeah. wherever they go. What a great hang they must be. I mean, if you're <laughs> obviously if you're not stealing their money, um, right. then they're a less great hang. But uh, this is w- the same time where Cole and the Blue Rose crew arrive. Um, and as they're all there, Cooper addresses them. Like, I'm, you know, I think he, I think he even says like, I'm glad we're all here together. I'm glad you're all here. Uh, mm-hmm. and he, he gives a speech, like there are some things that will change. The past dictates the future, which is our episode, uh, title here. It's at this moment where the, the candy, Sandy and Mandy arrive with a matter of sandwiches and snacks and beverages for everybody. Because, because of course, because of course, that's, I mean, they're, 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 they're hospitality experts. Um, as they arrive with their snacks, then we have this moment where the clock is stuck on two fifty three, and Cooper and NATO approach. And can you describe what happens when they, when they finally make like this physical contact with each other? 
Yes. So they, they sort of do almost like a slow motion high five. And so they're touching palms. And then we get a shot of, of NATO's face. And it, um, gosh, how to describe this? It transforms from a face into like, it's just sort of like a, like a pink mass. I, the word like meat popsicle comes to mind. <laughs> right? Right? But it was like, it was like fairly gross. And then we go from, there's like an, a small opening that opens in the, the mass and we end up in the Black Lodge and we see this sort of floating thing with a little crack in it and inside the crack we see half of Diane's face. We jump back to NATO and her and she transforms into real Diane with red hair and white nails, just like the colors of the Black Lodge. Yes. Good call. I love that that image of her with the red mm-hmm. hair and the the black and white nails. Uh, I really, again, another, I think this is our last Mitchum encounter, but Bradley kind of gives, like, focuses on Bradley and just goes like, whew, like he gets the chills. <laughs> you, I don't blame him. Yeah, you and me both, Bradley. Um, they kiss and, uh, you know, Cooper says, Diane, and she says, Cooper, and, and Cooper is, you know, the one and only, like, he's our guy. He's back. He's he's our guy. And it's in this moment, the the Cooper face that's been overlaid every shot for the last. You know, this is quite a, a long extended scene, says in a slow, distorted voice, voice, very much like the the Major Briggs Blue Rose speech. You know, when uh, we see his floating head in part three, he says, we live inside a dream. And when he says this, the there's some typical. Twin Peaks whooshing sounds, the room darkens, and Gordon and Coop call out to each other as we smash to black. We come out of this black, and there's the I've 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 dubbed them in this scene when I was taking my notes, like you got David Lynch, Kyle McLaughlin, and Laura Dern set against the black, walking towards the camera. And in my notes I dubbed them the Holy Trinity. You kind of have the the father, son, and Holy Spirit. So you've got the father, Lynch, and McLaughlin's the son, and Dern's the Holy Spirit. Um, they are at the Great Northern Hotel. They are approaching the door that we saw James approach earlier where this hum is coming from. Cooper unlocks the door, tells them not to follow him inside. He's very, he's very obvious. I'm going to go inside. I'm going to go inside this door. Do not, you know, don't follow me. And just before he walks in, he has an embrace with Diane and a handshake with Gordon. And what is the line that Cooper gives? Is he is he right before he steps into the blackness behind this door? See you at the curtain call. See you at the curtain call. Which, if you weren't crying already, yes, I was like, he said that line, and and that was it for me. I was I was bawling. So some interesting things about this line is that. Um, I learned this in listening to the interview that Matthew Lillard did uh, after his character was dispatched. And he talks about David Lynch has this habit, not this habit, this tradition on his set where when you as an actor wrap 
all of your scenes. So it's your last day on set and you're done and you, you deliver all of your scenes, regardless of how like big or small of an impact you have on the production. Lynch gathers everybody together, the crew, the cast, and gives these gives these people a send off, like thanks them for their work. Um, you know, sort of pulls them center stage and says, you know, like you were a part of this. And while that's not actually a curtain call, I sort of like that idea where, you know, as, as you know, a curtain call is that's the end, that's the end of the show. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so everybody within this production gets their curtain call, which is, I think really, really nice. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. For a guy who is sort of notoriously aloof during his, you know, won't, won't tell, won't explain, you know, what's going on on the page. Doesn't, you know, just expects people to kind of do what they're told. Like for him to have that sort of grace is really, really pretty cool. Um, as Cooper steps into the door, he is in a, another dark room. He's approached by uh, Mike who gives him the fire walk with me prayer. Do you know, do you know it? Can you recite it off the top of your head? Let's see. Um, um, one second. It's in my brain. Yeah. In my brain somewhere. I would like to point out that he is not speaking in black lodge speak. Correct. When, when he says this, Oh gosh! If you can get me started, I can. Yeah, probably... I'm, I'm I'm blank in the same way too. I was like, I don't need to write this down. I got this in my head. Um, I got the second like the second half of it in my head. Um, okay. But uh, yeah, you know, I'm sure I could, sure I could look it up here really quickly. Uh, but he, it. yeah, <laughs> I know. Like we're you know, we're supposed to be Twin Peaks experts here. Uh, so yeah. Anyways, he's not talking. Uh, he's not talking backwards. He's he's looking good. Um, I do like the the one line like one chance out between two worlds. It, um, I've seen it in the past, uh, where it's like the word chance instead of chance, like you know, chance like take a chance instead of chance like he chants the the words. Um, but uh, man, so it's what is it? Why can't I find it? Through the darkness, a future past. Yes. A magician <laughs> longs to see. To see. Yep. One chance out between two worlds. Fire walk with me. Yeah. Okay. Popped in there right at the right right at the last second. Um, okay. So he he delivers that that song, and then he <laughs> uh, after that, what does he say? Do you remember his his sort of uh, um, his magic word? You said it earlier in the podcast electricity yes yeah, so there's this burst of electricity and then suddenly cooper is at the dutchman's uh he's he's sort of going up the same staircase that we saw his doppelganger go up a few episodes ago while he's going up the staircase there's this like distorted sound and the the, the image is distorted and we see the character with the the mask and the pointed nose going down the stairs. And I don't know that they like, they don't have an interaction. I don't think like they're just sort of like ships in the night. But my question to you is that creature with like the pointy nose mask. Do you think that's Jow day? I don't. Uh, maybe. 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 Personally. I mean, 
I I think that that Joe Day is is possessing Sarah Palmer. But if we think about it as, you know, Sarah Palmer is the mask for Zhao Day, then perhaps hmm. that is like the real manifestation of Zhao Day. And that's why it's also wearing a mask, because it's wearing Sarah Palmer. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you as well that um, with the the spirit that's with inhabiting Sarah Palmer is, is Zhao Day. I think that that's, that's pretty... Yes, I agree. I think that that's, I, I, w- I would say that like that, that is a great interpretation. Um, so yeah, we see that guy, it, whatever it is, cruise down the stairs. Uh, we come into the courtyard. Cooper ends up going to see Philip Jeffries. I don't think Philip Jeffries is in the same room. Like, he, like Cooper like turns left where his doppelganger went straight. Um, I don't know if you picked up on that or if you had any thoughts on that, but it just seems like he's in a different place. Yeah. And I mean, the lighting, the lighting was different too. When good Cooper goes to see him, when bad Cooper goes to see him, it was like that flickering fluorescent light. Um, and wasn't, wasn't the fluorescent light like not flickering this time? Yeah, I don't think so. I think you're right. And and we got to see it from like a different angle because we come, you know, we mm-hmm. see the Philip Jeffries mechanism closer up uh for almost like from behind it at one point whereas when we were with the doppelganger cooper we only saw it from like his point of view yeah it was, it was very difficult to sort of make out what it was so they have this exchange and it's cooper's not really saying anything in this in this way he says a few things but it starts with jeffrey saying please be specific um and cooper gives the date February 23rd, 1989, which is the date of Laura Palmer's murder. Um, Jeffrey says something about uh, time and the phrase, it's slippery in here, which I think we'll, we'll get to when we get to, uh, to part 18. He, Jeffrey's also says, this is where you'll find Judy. And did you ask me this? And, and when he asks me this, you, he sort of puffs out the experiment symbol that, diamond with the little antennae which then becomes the figure eight which i i believe was probably uh like rather than the number eight is the symbol for infinity i i think that that's logical too i was trying to think of instances of the number eight in twin peaks and there have been a couple of recurring numbers certainly in the return uh most notably the number 253 I couldn't think of any any instances of the number eight, but there are certainly many evidences in Twin Peaks, which which I think you can look at that infinity symbol and interpret it that way. Yes. Excellent. Um, so that's th- the eight and there's this like sort of bead within the eight that's moving um, and it gets it gets to a certain point within like the it goes from like the lower left to the lower light, right quadrant of the the bottom part of the eight. And uh, Jeffrey says to him, you can go in now, which is interesting because, again, another part one callback. I believe it was part one uh, where mm-hmm. Cooper is told by the fireman, I believe, like you can go out now. I think he tells him that. Yeah. My- or, or does the arm uh it's either it's shoot 
They're like, just watch this. It's either Mike or Laura that says, you can yes. go out now. I think and it's then Laura. when he sees the arm. Yeah. And then when he sees the arm, the arm explains that he was tricked. Yes. So you can go out now or you can go in now. And then Mike delivers his line again. Electricity. And then all of a sudden there's the, the, the electricity happens. And then we're, we're in fire walk with me. It's black and white. James is picking up Laura. Uh, this is the last night of Laura's life, February 23rd, 1989. We see Leland sort of staring menacingly out of the window. And for the next five, 10 minutes of the show, we're just reliving fire walk with me and this encounter that James and Laura had in the woods, but there's a twist. And Amelia, what is the twist? The twist is that Cooper is in the woods and he is watching their encounter. And not only that, there's this in fire walk with me. There's Laura gives this chilling scream and she's a great screamer as we've discussed before, but she gives this chilling scream as she's having this <laughs> breakdown with James. And we find out now that the reason she screamed is because she saw Cooper. Mm-hmm. which is super fascinating. Like, I, I know there's like a bit of retconning with all of this. Like, you know, they, 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 they had this template. I, I, I guess I always assumed in the watching fire walk with me initially that she saw her father and screamed. Um, but I like this twist of now she sees this strange man. She's never met watching her in the dark woods with her secret lover. Um, you know, and, and this the scene plays out. We get the the lines from from Laura. She talks about how like Bobby killed a guy, and she wants to see, she wants to show it to James. And she's like, "Why?" You know. And then she's like, "No, you don't want to see that. Why would anybody want to see that?" <laughs> um, and then two two interesting lines like, "Your Laura disappeared," uh, which if she's talking to James, it's like, "Yes, your Laura disappeared," but is she maybe? talking to cooper in the same way like the you know we 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 can assume from what happens that we know cooper's intent here but it is interesting to think of the lines she's saying in this scene having like a double meaning or a dual purpose um Mm -hmm. especially the line she says i think you want to take me home now which is exactly what cooper wants to do um right i think that we can get into that more too in in part 18 um, when there's some some question of who Laura Palmer actually is, absolutely, man, I'm excited to talk about 18. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's gonna we're just gonna go in circles and talk for two hours. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> Sounds perfect. It's exactly what I want to do. Um, so James flees from Laura. She is alone in the woods with Laura's theme playing. Uh, Leo and Jacques Renault and Renette Pulaski wait for her, but she never shows up. Um, and finally, as she's in the woods, she approaches and finds Cooper. She asks him, who are you? Do I know you? And he's silent. He doesn't say anything to her. Um, and then she says, you know, oh, I, I've seen you in a dream, referencing the dream she had with, uh, Annie telling, uh, telling her that Goodale is in the lodge. Uh, she she knows who he is. She takes his hand. And then as she takes his hand, a whole bunch of things happen at once. He's leading her through the woods. He's taking her home. Um, we get a 
flash to the beach outside of the Martell household where Laura's body is resting and she's wrapped in plastic. And in this moment, uh, her body kind of like sketches out of existence. It's that's just not there. Um, comes back to Cooper leading Laura through the woods. And now this, all the scenes up to this point, all the fire walk with me scenes to this point had been in black and white and they are now in color, kind of the, the, you know, wizard of Oz effect there. Um, and as the color comes back, we are treated to the beginning of the original series of twin peaks, Josie Packard in the mirror, Pete going fishing, sort of being, you know, dismissed by his unpleasant wife. Um, and instead of like seeing the body and touching off the whole story, he just goes fishing. Uh, he's just kind of hanging out, having a grand old fishing time. And this is then probably the most chilling moment of this episode. We flash back to the Palmer household or flash forward or who, who knows where we are in time. Uh, in this scene with, with Sarah Palmer, but she's off screen giving this sort of like distorted demonic moaning. Uh, I, I simply wrote it as the scariest moaning (laughs) in my notes. I mean, I wondered at first if it was like a wounded animal or I, I mean, I didn't even equate it with a person. I thought that like some, some sort of horrible thing was in their house, which, which it no doubt is. Yes. But uh, yeah, that thing is definitely inside Sarah Palmer. Yeah. Given the choice between a sickly raccoon on its deathbed, yowling and a uh, extreme force of negative energy name known as Judy. I'm going to go with a raccoon 10 times out of 10. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so she like the, this like distorted in human moaning ends up becoming the, the famous Sarah Palmer screaming. She comes into the room. Uh, she grabs the, the famous photo, the famous homecoming photo of Laura Palmer takes it, throws it to the ground, picks up a bottle and begins to smash the photo with the bottle. And no matter what she does, no matter how many times she strikes this photo with this shard, you know, this just jagged glass bottle, she can't destroy it. It always seems to sort of like reform or reverse itself. Like there's this, you know, she's just, it's futile. And what I think, what I anticipate, or what I Uh, interpret with the scene is that um, no one felt the psychic horror of Laura's death more than her mother. And now there's been this change where the, the death of Laura Palmer seems to have just been erased from existence, but yet Sarah is still stuck in this hell of grief and terror Mm -hmm. i mean i also take this as the point that you've made a couple of times that in this universe bad ends up bad and and good ends up good so in the sense that i think this scene um from part eight with the firemen and i think that we see laura basically coming out of the white lodge is is proof that laura is the the goodest good that ever was good right and so in some ways, I think that this scene is evidence that good can never be totally destroyed. 
by evil. Yeah, they're the those two forces. They're they're much like matter. Like they <laughs> they they fight and they battle, but they yeah they they can't be eradicated. Um, so she can't she can't smash the picture. We are from there. We go back into the woods, and I I thought that. Cooper and Laura at this scene are are near Jackrabbit's palace. Do you does that jive with you? I it sounds great to me. Honestly, yeah. I had like zero sense of of location in in this scene, but uh yeah, that sounds like a great theory. I'll, I'll buy it. Cool. Um we are in the the woods, presumably possibly near Jackrabbit's palace. And Cooper and Laura are walking, and Cooper is sort of looking back at her every few steps. And then he hears this in scary scratching sound. It was the sound that was played on the phonograph in the fireman's room in part mm-hmm. one. Uh, the the sound right before the fireman said the phrase, it's in our house now, which again maybe takes my theory that like it's in our house now is in control and flips it back to it's in our house now. There's some sort of evil hand at work, um, and we have to be careful for what it does. Because when the sound happens, Cooper looks back and Laura is gone. Mm-hmm. We hear the same Laura scream that I believe we heard in part two, where she sort of like gets sucked up into the curtains of the black of the red room. Mm-hmm. Um, this sort of scream followed by this whooshing, and then black. And then Julie Cruz. Which was so fantastic. Julie Cruz is great. Yeah. I was so pleased that they brought her back. She still looks great. She still sounds great. Yes. Yeah. Julie Cruz is awesome. Yeah. She's got to be in the the top 100 people in the world. Like if you saw her on the street and you'd seen, and you've seen Twin Peaks, like immediately you'd be like, Julie Cruz. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt about it. Like, I feel like if, you know, I saw, you know, most, most celebrities, I may have to like do a double take or be like, you know, within 10 feet of them. But Julie Cruz, I could see like across a crowded subway platform. Uh-huh. Like, Absolutely. Yes, that's, that's Julie Cruz. She sings the song, The World Spins during the credits and the part 17 has ended. Wow. And our questions have just begun. Questions have just <laughs> begun. Um, there is a, I, I think you can look at it in a couple of ways. Um, it's pretty clear to me that the there is an ending to the show. There's multiple endings, as we'll get into in part 18, because there's a ton of threads. So to think that they would all wrap up into one little little bitty ending is is unrealistic. Um but, Especially Lynch. Yes. We get the we don't get the ultimate like uh epilogue on on Dirty Cooper, but we do get an end to him. Like he's gone, he's been you know, he's been sucked back to the lodge. We'll see him one last time in part eighteen. But we do sort of get an ending for a lot of the 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 characters with him. We get an ending for Freddy. We get an ending for the Mitchums, like you know, they they were witness to all of this, mm-hmm. all of these like, all of the the best characters sort of come together at the end in that scene, like the ride or die, you know, like these are the right. guys I want to hang out with if I'm fighting malevolent evil, 
Um, so we do get that nice sort of like, this is the ending of Twin Peaks. Like, you know, Truman is there. Andy and Lucy are good. Hawk is there. They're all safe. They've seen this crazy thing. Presumably their lives go on. Um, but maybe not. Maybe with the the erasing of Laura Palmer's death, maybe it's all it's it all changes. Maybe Andy and Lucy aren't married. Maybe, you know, like you can you can look at it as, you know, a number of different ways to interpret what happens to these people because of this action of Cooper going back in and plucking Laura out of that situation and putting her into another crazier situation. Right. Yeah, most most definitely. Yes. So yeah, the more I think about it, like I, I, I sort of have this this Twin Peaks math that I do in my head and it's like, well, if I wake up in the morning at six AM and I go to bed at eleven, ten or eleven, like that's a sixteen, seventeen hour day. For every ten seconds that I think about Twin Peaks during the day, I have to add like another minute onto my day after I get into bed. <laughs> <laughs> and I tend to think about Twin Peaks a lot. So generally like my days especially this week have ended with me like laying in bed being like, but what about this? But what about that? But how, uh -huh. what does this mean? How does, how does that go? And, you know, at the helm of it all is, is David Lynch being like, you know, shrug emoji. Like these are ideas. There is symbolism. There's foreshadowing. There's plot. There's narrative. There's climaxes. It's like, there's a real story here, but he defies the, this idea, which is a very television idea that like stories have to have answers. Mm -hmm. The one, the one answer that I am absolutely unwilling to accept is um, going back to, and I'd like to add that we get, we get that sort of like neat wrap up, right. With the, with the end of Bob and the end of dirty Cooper and all of that, like halfway through the episode. Right. And after that, I, I looked and I was like, we still have like an hour and a half of, of twin peaks. You know, what, what else is, is going to go on here? And of course, a lot of things go on, but when, when Cooper's, um, when Cooper's like giant head says it, it is like we are all in a dream. Mm -hmm. I think it is tempting to latch on to the trope of, oh, it was all a dream. Forget about it. Yes. That is something that I am absolutely not willing to accept for Twin Peaks. Though, I suspect that for for some characters, after the after Laura Palmer never died, perhaps they remember parts of this as a dream. Ah. Right. So maybe maybe their lives remain relatively unchanged. Maybe Andy and Lucy still get married. I hope that they do um, and, and have Wally and all of those things. But perhaps sometimes they have these strange dreams about this FBI agent, Dale Cooper. And Yeah, he's know. yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of haunting. And well, I think haunting is a big uh, the big theme in the last in part 18 that we'll have to explore. Oh, but, for sure. But I love the idea now of like this this town, which up to this point seemed to be haunted by this weird psychic unraveling anyways, where the young people who lived in this town were all on drugs and they're all freaking out at this bar all the time. And 
and all that. But now what is, you know, what is the town haunted by now because of, because of Cooper's action, because of removing this, this moment from, from the history of Twin Peaks, from the history of, of the world. It is a very interesting thing to imagine the whole enterprise of Twin Peaks collapsing in on itself because of this, like the ultimate hero and the ultimate victim, you know, he tries to save her. And by doing that, unravels everything Mm -hmm. was Mm -hmm. pretty pretty exciting to think about Um, and i mean what you know where where are the scales on this does does removing laura palmer's death um tilt them more towards good or or more towards evil i mean obviously bob being out in the world is is a pretty big hit for evil but but there's no guarantee that he wasn't out in the world after after Laura disappears, right? So it's it's all just it's all speculation. <laughs> what does it all mean? Um, <laughs> I, I like the the idea, and I think if there's if there's one person you can look at uh, within the Twin Peaks universe as sort of being the universal truth sayer, it's Margaret Lannerman. It's the Log Lady, absolutely, and. and you know, when right before she passed, she she told Hawk, like, you know, death's not an end. It's it's a change and the and not to fear it. Like, but there is some fear and letting go was her her line and the tagline of that episode. And um, maybe that's a wise lesson as we uh, to, to preface our conversation in part 18. Um, you know, maybe Cooper was just too afraid to let go. And what happens when you try to hang on and you try to deny death, you know, stay tuned. (laughs) (laughs) We'll, uh, we'll get into that. Um, yes, I, uh, I, I, I have to say that, um, this, this Twin Peaks journey has been spectacular in a, in a way that I've never really experienced with a TV show before. Um, and I think that part of it is you're, it's like being on a roller coaster, but you have no idea when the hills are going to come, mm-hmm. like when you're going to plummet, you know, when, when all of a sudden it's just going to drop out from underneath you. Uh, so the way that Lynch spins his yarns is, is, is pretty invigorating. It's not always satisfying, um, in the way that like an episode of breaking bad or, or mad men or like where you're in your head the whole time you're trying to game out what's happening. Like, Oh, if this person does this and this is the consequence of that, that will lead this person to act in this manner. And mm-hmm. thus our hero will win. Right. But there's but, no logical progression. With right. Twin- yeah. You can't, you can't ever wrap your head around it. It's as, as Philip Jeffrey says, it's slippery in here. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's no no doing that. And that's really it's really an exciting way to experience a story. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. And the thing that I loved about this, you know, at the end of at the end of the original series, I think there is not one Twin Peaks fan who is not frustrated by that ending because it was just deliberate cliffhangers for every major character. And while, you know, this one, in some ways, at least on one level, seems to 
wrap up some of the stories, right? So if we if we don't take into account the possible non-existence of all these characters following Cooper's actions, you know, I think that like Bob is destroyed. They go on living their lives. I have confidence that Andy and Lucy and Hawk and Truman and the Mitchum brothers and all of them will, will continue to lead wonderful full lives. And those are the people that I care about. So I'm, this show is at this point, it's, it's emotionally satisfying while still intellectually complex and interesting. And I will be thinking about it for the rest of my life. Yes. Yeah. I, I have yet to, we we'll talk maybe a little bit more about this in in part eighteen, but I think now that this is over, um, I want to revisit the original series and really and take my time with it and and pay close attention to the Lynch directed episodes, um, but sort of sort of see how it was mined for this story and the things that like the elements of the story that were that were held on to and the ones that were just completely dis- discarded um you know in the in the scope of the twin peaks the return if you try to imagine donna hayward appearing in this show it just doesn't make any sense mm-hmm. or right? annie right yes right at first you're like like the whole where's annie where's annie at the end of at the end of the original series and that was a question that i was asking at the beginning of this but as it went on, the story of, of Cooper and Diane was so much more compelling than that of Cooper and Annie. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, wow. I could do this for, for hours. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're sort of rambling here. Let's, let's wrap it up, Amelia. We, you and I believe we're going to gather in a day or two to put down our final thoughts on part 18 and 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 wrap this whole enterprise up um it's been great i you know i i I, i'm feeling a little bit of grief right now as we approach this uh this last this last discussion we have um especially coming off of this episode which was so so impactful um so exciting and and visually interesting and terrifying and and it was really everything that lynch is great at um just in its purest, rawest form. So I thank you for this conversation and I look forward to the next one. It it has been great. It is. I'm feeling those bittersweet feelings as well. Yeah. But, well, uh, yeah. Well, talk well, to you about 18 soon. Yeah. Talk to you soon. And then uh, I'll see you at the curtain call. See you at the curtain call.
gentlemen, to Weevil.